Open them up to the Gospel of Luke and turn to the 15th chapter. Luke chapter 15, we're going to be starting in verse 11 this morning. Uh, We won't get very far. My wife informed me that even if I was doing this full time, I don't think we would get but a couple verses into it, and that's the case that we have today. But we're going to start to look at probably uh, the most familiar of all the parables that the Lord Jesus Christ ever told. Even those who know nothing, next to nothing, about the Bible are really somewhat familiar with this parable. Some have said that this is the finest of Christ's parables. It's filled with true feeling and painted in the most beautiful of colors. Another has said that this is the pearl, the crown of all the parables in Scripture. Even the famed authors of Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson have said that these 21 verses comprise of the greatest story ever written. And yet it is more than just a story. But what this parable has become to know, be known by is as the parable of the prodigal son. And that's probably not really the best title for that parable because the wayward son here is not the principal character and it's not just about him. Because the reality of this parable is that there are two sons in this parable. Both of them have speaking parts and yet it's the older brother that is often overlooked and ignored when people talk about this parable. You don't ever hear anyone call this the parable of the grumbling brother or the ungrateful firstborn. But what's of greater importance here in this parable is that this story is, is actually about God. Because God is the common denominator between the two sons. And God is the common denominator between the other two parables as well. We've seen that in the other parts of Luke 15, that God is likened to a shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes out and finds his one lost and wandering sheep, laying it upon his shoulders, and with great rejoicing he celebrates that he has found it. And God is compared and likened to a woman who diligently and meticulously sweeps her home until she finds her one lost coin out of the ten. And then when she finds it, gathers her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my coin that was lost. And so if you wanted to give this parable another name, you could actually call this the parable of the gracious God, or even better, the parable of the rejoicing Father. Because that has been the predominant theme of the other two parables, and really is the theme of this one as well. And so, one of the reasons that I think that this is so frequently referred to as the parable of the prodigal son is for the simple fact that everyone that reads this, they so quickly and readily identify with that son. When we examine our hearts and our service to the Lord, or when we reflect on our relationship to Him, at some point, at some level, we all see ourselves as this wasteful, prodigal son that is in this parable. In fact, that's what the word prodigal literally means. It doesn't mean wayward. It means wasteful. 
or to live with reckless extravagance, or to say it another way, to live your life with a foolish squandering of the resources that's been given to you. And yet that is what millions upon millions of Americans are doing with their lives to one degree or another. They're wasting it. Their one life that they're given to live upon this earth, this blink of an eye life, that you and I all live with heaven and hell ever before them for all eternity, they're wasting it. And so as we go through this text this morning, I think that's an appropriate question that we have to ask ourselves. What am I doing with the life that God has given me? Am I wasting my life? Am I foolishly squandering what God has given to me? Am I spending it on living for myself and my comforts and my ease? Or have I truly left everything behind to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I care more about my 401k, my retirement, my perfect home, making more money, my health, my future, my physical gratifications, my climbing of the corporate ladder, my popularity, my pride, my physical comforts. Do I care more about those things? Am I more passionate about those things? Do I spend more of my time and my money and my effort on those things than I am about knowing and serving the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question this morning. You see, because we are not made for those things. You and I were made for the glory of God. That's what you're here for. That's why you are put on this earth. In other words, you are here, you are made so that you might put God on display for the rest of the world to see in the way that you live, in the way that you think, in the way that you feel. Isaiah 43, 7, it says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, and therefore glorify God in your body. And we could go to Ephesians 1.14 and Philippians 1.19 and so many more. It is all over the Bible. The uniform teaching of Scripture is that God has created you, God has placed you on this planet, God has given you life and breath and all things so that through your life, God would look magnificent, that God would look glorious. And if you don't bring your life into sync with that, you're wasting it. You are absolutely squandering what you have been made for and you will end up losing it. People will never, ever see the supreme value of God if you show them, or unless you show them, that you value God supremely. And yet in our parable this morning, we see this young man who is at the opposite end of the spectrum to the extreme. He does not 
value or see the supreme value of God in the least bit. So let's begin to look at our text this morning together, beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. God's inspired and inerrant word says this, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and he said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a commandment of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we sang this morning, let your words sink deep into us to conform us into the image of Christ. Help us not just to hear these words, Lord, but help us to apply them, to live for your glory, to make much of you in our lives. 
Father, we thank you for this time. We just praise, pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is on trial. And the charge or the accusation against him is found in verse 2 of this chapter, when the Pharisees and the scribes say to him, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And as we've looked at this text over the last several weeks, we saw how this word receives is not a passive term, but it's an active one. Luke uses this word six other times, and each time it means to be eagerly awaiting or even looking for. It's not as just as if Jesus is sitting with his arms stretched out, waiting around for people to show up, but he is actively seeking tax collectors and sinners to come to him and to eat with him. Now, the Pharisees had a name for the type of people that Jesus was actively seeking, and they were called the Amharits. The Amharits, they were unclean, they were unholy. The Pharisees, who supposedly knew God and represented God and spoke for God, considered these people the worst that Jewish society had to offer. In their eyes, they were unredeemable, and they were treated as if they were less than human. For example, in the rabbinic law, if you would have someone at your home cleaning your house, and this low-life person is in there cleaning, and they stopped working for just a minute to take a rest or take a break, your home was now considered unclean. That's how they viewed these types of people. Even in the Talmud, it's written of the Amharits, It says, do not go near these people even to attempt to teach them the law of God. To put it in a word, Phariseeism was anti-evangelistic. They wanted to stay away from these people and did anything and everything to keep their distance from them. And yet Jesus did the complete opposite to to do everything he could to bring them near to himself. And so the three parables that follow uh, after verse 2 there are Jesus' response to the, and his explanation as to what is really going on when he welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus begins in verse 11 there in our text by utilizing something familiar to us once again by saying, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, so he starts calling him father. It sounds like a respectable address, right? It doesn't last long because he continues. He says, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. I will stop there for just a second. Because you might read that and you might think to yourself, well, this is a pretty reasonable request. Because those of us that have children are very familiar with them coming up to us and asking for some money. But this is a little more sinister than it really appears at first glance. Because first of all, I want you to notice that this is not a request, but this is a demand. He's not saying, Father, may I have a share of the estate? But he's saying, Father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my due. Give me what you owe me and not give me whatever you think is fair and equitable and I'll be on my way. But give me my share of the state. And by the way, the younger son, 
would have been entitled to about a third of this father's estate and the older son two-thirds. So we find that in Deuteronomy 21.17 where a double portion is entitled to the older son. But this kid is, is basically saying, give me my stuff. Now, the unreasonable thing about this demand is that in ancient times, he would never have a right to do this because he was a younger son. And he's jumping ahead of the line of his older son. But even if you were the older son, this would have been unthinkable to do. It would have been unconscionable for you to even ask your father because it would have been viewed as being disrespectful to him. It wasn't that uncommon for a father to transfer the legal rights of a property over to a son before he died, right? Get away from that probate court, right? But the father would still retain the use of that property and he would get the income from it. But the father would always do that on his own accord. No one would ever ask him to do so. No respectful son would ever dare ask him to do that in advance. It was considered dishonorable. And why is that? Because the only time that you would actually get your hands on your inheritance was when your father actually did what? He died, right? And so, essence, what this younger son is coming and saying to this, this father is, I wish you were dead so I could get a hold of your money. Give me my inheritance and you can just go ahead and die while you're at it. This is unthinkable. And it could only mean that the son regarded the father with complete contempt and even hatred. He wanted away from the watchful eye of his father. He wanted to flee, get free of that parental restraint. He was proud of his own uh, perceived sufficiency, thinking he could do better with the estate than the father. In a word, he's lost even before he's left his home. He's lost in selfishness. He's lost in his greed. He's lost in ingratitude. And he wants all the blessings of his father, but he doesn't want the father. He wanted the gifts, but he doesn't want the giver. And I want to know, do you find yourself in that same situation this morning? Ask yourself this question. What is my chief desire in going to heaven? Why do you want to go to heaven? Why do I want to go to heaven? Think about this. If you could go to heaven, and you never had to be sick, and you could go to heaven, you could walk on streets of gold, and you could go to heaven and never feel anxious, never feel depressed, never feel angry, and you would have all the delicious food you could ever want, ever desire, You could have beautiful sunsets all the day long, and you would walk on the beach all the time. You'd have all your children, all your friends, all your loved ones there with you to enjoy it, and no one ever grumbled and complained. And yet, Jesus Christ was never there with you. Would you be okay with that? Or do you want to go to heaven because you get to be with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want to go to heaven so that you can have some sweet, unhindered communion with Him? Do you want to go to heaven so you can see Him face to face, glorious, majestic in His splendor, to be with Him, 
to enjoy him and all of his glorious privileges as his precious child and a holy and perfect love to God, ravished with him, delighting in him for all of eternity. Is that why you want to go to heaven? J.C. Ryle once wrote, But alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die, while they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ. You give no Christ no honor here. You have no communion with Him. You do not love Him. Alas, what would you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be no happiness into which you could enter. Its employments would be weariness and a burden to your heart. Oh, repent and change before it's too late. As you examine your heart this morning, do you find yourself like this younger son, wanting only God's gifts, but not God himself? So this young man, he thinks he's going to gain some freedom from his father, and that'll make him happy, and he demands his inheritance. And the word for estate here literally translates into the word stuff. Give me my stuff. I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with this family. I want nothing. I don't want to wait any longer. I don't want to have to live under your rules. I don't want to live under your restraints. Give me my stuff. This is outrageous. This isn't just a simple request for some cash. In Middle Eastern culture, this would have been taboo. And what would have happened and would even happen to this day, that as soon as those words flew out of his mouth, his father would probably have smacked him across the back of his face and said, you insolent, ungrateful, disrespectful son. And then not only that, the father would have grabbed him by the ear and drug his son out into the courtyard, and they would have flogged him publicly. And why is that? It's because the son had brought such dishonor onto his father. It was a shame-honor culture, and it still is today. If someone converts to Christ, or some woman walks around with her, without her hijab, or she, uh, she marries someone outside the Islamic faith, they have dishonored the family, and a lot of times they're stoned, they're beaten, or they are killed because they have dishonored the family name. I think of Nabil Qureshi who was a Pakistani Muslim who converted to Christ and then traveled the world as an apologist and an itinerant speaker for Ravi Zacharias Ministries. He just died three weeks ago, 34 years old. But he said that when he broke the news to his father, that he became a Christian a little over 10 years ago, that he saw his father cry for the very first time, and that his father said, you know what, Nabil, you've just ripped my spine out of my back because he felt so dishonored and he felt so betrayed. It's an honor-shame culture. It still is to this day. And so this son is asking for this inheritance would have been unimaginable to do such a thing. And so in verse 12, an even more unimaginable thing happens. It says, so that, so he, that is the father, divided his wealth between them. So the father says, okay. The father says, I'll liquidate and divide it up. 
But even the older son here has culpability. Because notice that it says in the text that the estate is divided up between them. The older son received his stuff, just like the younger son. But as we will see later on, he just happens to stick around. And so instead of coming up to his younger brother and putting him in a headlock and giving him a noogie and whacking him on the back of the head and saying, you know what, what is wrong with you? What's your problem? The older brother goes along with this whole scheme and he gets his stuff as well. Because if the older brother, if he truly loved the father, if he truly valued his father's name and he wanted to honor it, he would have stepped in and said, no way, enough, stop this nonsense. But he receives it as an inheritance as well. So then look at verse 13. And it says, and not many days later. And so hold on a second right there. Not many days later, an entire estate with land and livestock and servants and everything else is divided up in a matter of a couple days. How in the world do you do that? How could you sell something like your home and your car and all of your stuff in just a matter of days? You'd sell it cheap, wouldn't you? You'd sell it for pennies on a dollar. We used to have a saying when I worked in the Christian book business back in the day, you always said, stack them high and watch them fly. And that's because you would stack these books up so high that you could draw attention to them and you'd advertise them as to how discounted they were and people would just swoop in and buy that stack up in a hurry. And so this entire estate is discounted, advertised, liquidated within a matter of days. And he's dividing it up amongst the two sons. And verse 12 says as much when he says, The younger son gathered, or rather, gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And so this expression here, gathered everything together, it comes from the world of finance. And it means basically to take your property and your possessions and to turn it into cash. He's taken his hard assets and he's converted it into cold, hard cash. In just a matter of days, this young son has taken all of the flocks, all of the herds, all of the things that would have been his, all of the land that was owned to him, all the possessions that would have been part of his inheritance, and he has sold it, and now he's got a huge pocket full of money. How would we know that this would have been a sizable amount of money? Because it says even after the father has divided this inheritance, he still has a fattened calf with which to celebrate in verse 23. And he's still got servants. He still has robes. He still has rings. He's got a banquet hall big enough to dance and entertain everyone still in verse 25. And so this younger brother, he got a nice big chunk of change in his pocket. And so just in case there's any doubt, or any question as to what the son's true intentions were in demanding his portion of the estate. It says as soon as he got this into his hands on it, he got out of Dodge. It says he went to a distant country. It's just another way to say that he went to a Gentile land. He went away from the land of Israel. He went far enough away that no one would recognize him and call him out 
for his foolishness. Because this is really what he wanted. He wanted the freedom to sin. He wanted freedom away from his family. He wanted to choose his own values and do his own things. <clears throat> Excuse me. He wanted to get away from any sort of accountability from his father or his brother or the other villages that may have been around him. And that's a lot of times the real reason that children are leaving the home as soon as they can. Or they head out to head out of state for spring break while they're in college because they think that the distance will bring them personal fulfillment and happiness apart from any restraints of accountability. Because it says, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. And that word for squandered there, it means to scatter. He's indiscriminately throwing his cash around. And the imagery is like someone that's taking their possessions and throwing them up into the wind. If anyone's buying a round of drinks, he's doing it for everyone. If anyone needs some cash to go buy pizza, this guy is the one that's supplying the money. If Susie Q comes up to him and says, hey, I want to buy a new dress, he is the financier. He's literally just throwing his money around. He's the life of the party. He's everybody's buddy. And his money is just raining around him as he's living this debaucherous, wasteful lifestyle. He is on a spending spree of, for things of no value, and he is intent on living for the passing pleasure of sin. Thomas Watson said, What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure drink in a sea of wrath? That's what this man is doing. In fact, of all the sinners that Jesus ever portrayed in any of the parables, this guy is the most extreme. He's engrossed in sexual immorality with prostitutes. He's throwing away all of his money. He's living in a pagan land, an idolatrous country. He's rebelling against his father. He's without any brotherly love or concern for his older brother. He's only living for today and not thinking about the future. This is a potentially bad situation. And so the picture is going to get worse for this young man and his life, as we're going to see in the next few weeks. And we'll have to pick up in verse 14 when we come back. But I want to ask you this morning, what are you living for? What consumes your thoughts and your time and your money? Is, your, is it all centered around glorifying and magnifying God the Father so that everyone who looks at your life will see it? Or do you find yourself more like this prodigal, squandering all of your God-given resources? I even wrestled with this myself this week. I got a a mailer this week from a ministry that I've supported in the past. You know, they send you those things periodically. And I had to ask myself, I support this. I, I like this. I want to honor this. And yet I haven't given a dime in a long time. Because I've been thinking about other things. Do you find yourself living more like this, this prodigal and squandering your God-giving resources? Or let me ask you, to, ask you this way. What is it that you pray the most about? Because what you pray about, it actually reveals 
what your heart is deeply concerned about? Are your prayers more centered looking for your earthly pleasures and your personal fulfillment and your comforts and to be satisfied? Or do your prayers reflect a concern for the the glory of God to to be displayed through your life and His kingdom to be advanced and expanded? What do you find your prayers centered on? Is it God or is it yourself? And what are you doing with the resources that God has given you? C.T. Studd said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What in the world are you doing this morning with this one life, this vapor of a life that you have? I can't tell you how many times I see people much younger than I die. All the time. Every week. You think you have your life before you? You don't know nothing. Are you living for Christ today? Is He whom you treasure? Do people see Christ treasured in your life? That's the question you have this morning. What are you doing with this one life? You're never too old and you are never too young to start living for Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that often too many times our our hearts and our passions and our concerns are centered on us. We live for ourselves. We squander the many resources that you give to us and you bless us with. Father, help us to be a people who take stock today of what our life is making its mark for. Let us live to the glory of Christ. Let his name be exalted and magnified in our life. Father, we just pray that you would transform our hearts and conform us into the image of your Son. We just pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.